Hey, this is Kevin, the student pastor at Short Church Again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We strive each week to bring relevant, practical, biblical teaching that meets you where you are. To stay up to date with what's going on at the church or to support the mission financially, head over to scog.com or download our app. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning. We are, uh, we are wrapping up this series, Come to the Table, today. Uh, we've been going through this for uh, quite a few weeks now. Uh, and it is, it's been a, this journey where we've been looking at this idea that Jesus often would teach these lessons, he would have these conversations, he would dive into these relationships around a table, that he would invite someone to a meal, he would invite himself to a meal at someone else's house, I'm really good at that, uh, or he would, you know, just find ways to connect with people around a table through some food, because that's how we connect, that's, that's the place that relationships happen, it's the place that good conversations happen as we get around the table. You... Uh, you, all of us, have probably celebrated Thanksgiving this last week, and it's one of the biggest table days of the year, right? This is, this is one that you might only eat around a dinner table this one day of a whole year. Maybe you're like the, the family that grabs it off the stove and just kind of goes to your own room, or you sit on the couch, or maybe it, no one's ever home at the same time, we're just grabbing what we can. And so Thanksgiving is this moment where we're like, okay, no one has to work, The stores are closed. We can't go there yet. Everyone's going to go home and come to the table and have a meal. Now, some people fear the conversation that's going to happen around the table at Thanksgiving. We're a little nervous because the crazy uncle's there this year and we're not sure what's going to get said. But ultimately, as we come around the table, that's when we're going to be vulnerable enough to start to have those conversations. Sometimes a little challenging sometimes pushing us in ways we're not comfortable with, but ultimately allowing us to, to get to the heart of some things going on. Uh, this last Sunday, uh, the students went to uh, Peoria for a conference down there, the 2024 Summit, uh, and that was a wonderful weekend. Uh, had several younger, like junior high students, that this was their first big trip away, and it was, it was a really cool experience. But as we're driving on our way down... Paul and I are in the van and we're like, man, it's pretty quiet in here today, don't you think? Like, these kids are pretty tame for like 4 p.m. on a Friday, 5 p.m. out. It was dark. It's winter. It's probably like noon. Uh, (laughs) So we're like, it's dark and we're like, man, pretty quiet. Are they all asleep? And we look back in the van and all you see is just glowing faces, just everyone down at their phones. And I was like, man, those kids and their phones, I don't understand what they're, as I'm myself, on my phone. And so this, this come to the table idea of like, how are we engaging with people? What, what are we doing? It's really stuck out to me these last several weeks. And I, there have been so many times where I know myself, like I'm an introverted person. I, I like kind of my own self. I like to be around. And like when I'm on a student trip, I can't be that. I'm this like crazy outgoing, like get everyone excited about stuff. Like I'm jumping up on chairs and like, hey, everybody. And then like, as soon as I get home, I'm like, oh gosh, finally, (laughs) like curl up on a couch with a blanket, like turn off all the lights, like no one talked to me. And so like, I I get that. I like, I want to just kind of hide away. I want to have my own space. I I want to hide myself in my phone. And so as I've thought about this, I've been like, okay, when are the times I can put down the phone and connect with the people around me? And often that's when we finally come to the table. Uh, 
Uh, So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15 today. And I am ambitiously going to try and get through this entire chapter. So we're going to do a little bit of paraphrasing because there is a lot packed into these 32 verses that we have in chapter 15. There's, there's a couple parables that, that Jesus uses here, and they really just show an incredible depth to God's love. Now, thankfully, as, as you open up chapter 15, you might see some pretty familiar things. We're going to look at three parables. We have the lost sheep the lost coin, and the lost son, often referred to as the prodigal son. And so these are stories you're probably familiar with. Even even if you didn't grow up in the church, even if you maybe haven't been in the church very long, these are stories that really kind of have permeated our entire culture. Like this idea of the lost son, the son coming home, the lost being found, it's really... Uh, it's it's huge in, in media and movies and TV. Like, this is a theme that we constantly are pulling back on. Like, this is a story that we all know. And I think even, even at this time, these are stories that, as Jesus is telling these stories, these parables, they were really connecting to these people. But before we even start getting into that, let's, let's figure out who is Jesus talking to. And so... This idea of coming to the table, well, who's at the table? And if we kick it off with just verse 1 and 2, Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, so right off the bat, we already know Jesus is accepting anyone to come to his table, even these sinners and these tax collectors. And like... I feel like the Bible's really hard on tax collectors. And like, I know people don't like the IRS, but generally we're just like, they're boring. It's, it's like, it's just a duty. It's not so much that we like hate these tax collectors, but it's, it really can't be overstated how much tax collectors were hated at this time. Like this would be like the worst of the worst criminals coming to your table. And the reason is because at this time, the Jewish people were still the chosen people of God. They wanted to be their own empire. They should be going forth and really be ruling the whole earth as God's chosen people, but yet at this time, they've been beat down, they've been destroyed, they're currently under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is going to collect their tax, but they're not going to go send out all these tax collectors to all these different places that they're ruling. They're going to say, hey, I'm going to hire this local guy And what's your payment for going and collecting taxes from all your neighbors and past acquaintances and old family members and friends? You get to keep whatever extra you get. Caesar needs what Caesar needs, but anything extra you collect, you keep. And so you can see how this might attract a certain corrupt individual, or it might uh, lead to a situation in which you're incentivized to collect as much tax as you can and really bleed these people dry because anything else I get, I keep. And so it was not uncommon for these tax collectors to take two times, three times as much as what Rome required and stuff their own pockets. So these tax collectors are not just this government that's controlling them, but it's people they knew. It's people from their own community abusing them, taking advantage of them. So they're hated. And that's the people that Jesus is meeting with here. And that's because Jesus is gracious with his acceptance. 
So often, the people that Jesus is willing to sit with, to talk to, to have these conversations with, are people that no one else is willing to. And not only is Jesus willing to have these conversations and sit with these people, but he uses them. He's able to find in them what God has put there, and then these people are the most willing, the most gracious with the grace that they receive. Because these Pharisees, they're just like, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to do all this. And you know what? The lost are lost. They already made their choices, and I made mine. But Jesus is like, I I have grace enough for everyone. I'm going to give them a chance. And so he starts by telling these three different parables. And, and oftentimes, these parables, we kind of hear them here and there, but the three are really meant to be this one story. Jesus sits down and tells all these parables at the same time, and so we really shouldn't be separating them. Let's, let's look at them all together here today. And so then in verse 4, he picks up with this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So here we have this sheep. It was lost, it is found, and there's a celebration. We're going to see that over and over again as Jesus tells these parables. It was lost, it is found, and then there's a celebration. And Jesus really is, is hammering this home because he's painting this picture of the shepherd. Now, why, why would he talk about this? This is something that, that people are going to be able to relate with. Like, they know what a shepherd has to do. They understand the shepherd's job. And the way he lays this out is, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And so this is just one guy that has a hundred sheep. That's a lot of sheep. This is a very wealthy person. But even though he has all this wealth, he has all this money, he has all these sheep, he's willing to go seek out that one that gets lost. And uh, I have this little video that uh, you may have seen it go around. It's gone around quite a few times. Uh, but I just, every time I hear this parable, I think of this video now. Uh, and so go ahead and play that, Kev. All right, the sheep walked away. He was okay. <laughs> but that cracks me up every time. I, I love this little clip because, like, this shepherd went on a journey to get that sheep. First of all, I don't know how the sheep managed to find himself in that predicament, but that's a whole nother sermon. So this it's clearly gotten himself into some trouble. He is in a place he should not be. He is stuck. He cannot get himself out. But yet, this shepherd is willing to climb this hill. He's like, you can see him like dragging himself up by the fence. Like, that is a pretty interesting little spot that the sheep has found himself. And like, I love that the sheep falls right away (laughs) because the shepherd climbs this hill, takes the sheep out of where it's been trapped and stuck and sets it on a rock and the sheep just dives right off. Like, relatable, right? Like, God takes me out of something. He deliver- He's like, all right, I got you. I know it's been tough, but here you go. And I was like, cool, thanks. Hoo-ah! Just jump right off the hill again. 
Again, I think that's a whole other sermon for another day. But, but here we have this sheep, no matter how far it's gone, no matter what crazy situation it's gone to, that shepherd is going to leave the others and go find his lost sheep. And then Jesus drives this point home with these Pharisees a little bit more too. With verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so like as he pulls that sheep out, once it's fallen down the hill and stands up again and walks away, he starts cheering and you see like all his friends that are there with him, they're cheering, they're high-fiving. Like, everyone's celebrating about saving this one lost sheep. But I'm sure that had those same friends walked up to a field full of those sheep, they wouldn't just be like, yeah, look at all these sheep. Like, I don't really, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, they're safe, good. But as soon as that lost one is found and returned, then there's cause for celebration. And so these righteous people, these Pharisees, are saying, well, you know, so much for the tax collectors and the sinners and they're doing all their bad things. I'm, I'm good over here. But Jesus is telling them there's going to be more celebration when the lost one is found than just because the righteous are already here. And then Jesus jumps into another parable. And so he starts telling the story of a woman who's lost her coin. And so we pick up at verse eight. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It was lost, it's found, and there's a celebration. The coin is lost, she finds the coin, And there's cause for celebration. She had nine other coins, but when that lost one is found, now there's cause for celebration. And there's a couple things that could be going on here. I mean, all we know is this woman had nine coins, or she had ten and she lost one. So it could just be that she's kind of a poor woman. She doesn't have a lot. She's got these ten coins. And like losing one coin, that could be as much as like ten days' wages that have been lost. And so if this is all she has, that could be the difference between being able to feed her family or starving during a famine. Like, she needs this coin. This coin is life to her. But it it could also have this totally other meaning going on in that uh, at this time, it was customary for a woman to to be able to save up and collect 10 silver coins. And then out of those silver coins, she would take some silver chain and she would build a headdress out of these 10 coins. And that would be what she would wear to her wedding. And so it would basically be like the modern equivalent of her wedding ring. So it'd be like losing this one coin out of this wedding headdress is like she lost her wedding ring. And so she is going to do anything that she can to search and find that coin. And this idea that Jesus is laying out here is that when the sinner is lost, God is going to turn over the whole house. He will not stop looking until he finds what is lost. And, and this is really the point that Jesus starts shaking up everyone's worldview. Because this is actually a new idea that he's really pitching here. 
because he's, he's talking to these tax collectors, these, these sinners, these people that are not doing what they're supposed to do. And he's also talking to these Pharisees, these people that are supposed to be so godly and they're, they're rulers and leaders in the church. And he's talking to these two groups of people at the same time. And for the Pharisees, this is like a revolutionary idea. Because if you asked the Pharisees at this time, hey, how do you get into relationship with God? Like, what do you do to go to God? And they would say, the pathway to God is through the law. If I follow the law, if I do the things God told me to do, that's how I get to God. Everything that I do earns me my path to God. And what Jesus is saying here is, you don't earn it. There's not something that you can do. God is seeking out the lost. And once it is found, there's going to be a celebration. And so this brings us to our third parable. So now we have the son. And uh, I'll start paraphrasing here because this, this uh, story is a little longer than the first two. But we pick up in verse 11 if you want to try and follow along. And this is where a father has two sons. And the younger son goes to his dad and he says, I want my inheritance now. Everything that you have, like what you're going to give me when you die, I want it now. And so he's basically saying to his dad, I wish you were dead, give me my stuff. That's essentially what he's saying. And then he goes a step further because he doesn't just take this plot of land that he would be given and he doesn't just take the stuff that he would have. He takes those things and he sells them. And now he takes that money and he leaves. So it's really just adding an insult to injury here. Like this is, this is pretty wild. This is, it's not completely unheard of that a father would retire, that he'd say, you know what, I'm old enough, I have my family, I have my sons, I'm going to give my sons their inheritance and now they can watch after our, our flock, our farm, our property, I'm going to put them in charge of it. But for the son to go to the dad and say, I want it now, that's, that's pretty out there. And then to just throw it away and take it and leave, that's even worse. And so the father divides it up. The older son, he would get two-thirds. He would get a higher portion, and then what's left goes to the younger son. And so the younger son gets a third, he sells it, and he leaves. And then what does he do with his third? He takes it, he takes his money, and he goes off to distant lands. And so that's just code for he went somewhere he's not supposed to go. Like this is a Jewish family. They're supposed to stay within their own community and be a part of God's chosen people. Well, he said, yeah, forget all that. I'm going to go somewhere else. He goes somewhere that's not a Jewish land. And then he goes and he squanders his money on wild living. So he takes this and he doesn't like start a new life. He doesn't go and build a business. He just goes and parties. And he parties so hard, all his money's gone. And then a famine hits. And so had he been, ta- if he had taken his father's money and invested it wisely in a strong portfolio, like he could have been okay, but no, he just spent it all and now a famine comes. And so he has nothing and he's literally starving to death. So he's like, I got to do something. He's, I, I got to get some work. I got to do something. And the only thing that he's able to find is he starts working as a hired hand for someone else, feeding their pigs. Now, 
pigs to the Jewish people are an unclean animal. You can't eat it. You can't even touch it. You should not be around pigs at all. So at this point, the son has really debased himself, just brought himself to the lowest possible place that he could be. And while he's starving, while he's feeding these pigs, he's looking at the slop that he's throwing to them and he's saying, man, I wish I could eat that right now because I have nothing. And he starts to think, and this is kind of like his rock bottom moment. He squandered everything he had. He dishonored his family. He went off to a different land and he's now disgraced himself by working with these pigs, lowering himself to even eat what they eat. And this is, he kind of has this moment, if we pick up in verse 17. He says, when his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's going back to his dad. He's like, all right, I hit rock bottom. There's nothing left for me here. Even my dad's servants had more than what I have now. They had abundance. And so I should go home. But he starts like psyching himself up because he says, I'll say to him. So he's like preparing his speech. He's planning it out. He's like walking home. He's like, father, I have sinned Mm. against you and God, right? Okay. Father, I've sinned against you and God. Not even worthy to be yourself. Like, he's really hyping himself up. He's practicing an argument. I practice a lot of arguments. I don't get in very many arguments, but I practice a lot of arguments. Like, he knows. He's like, I'm going to come to my dad. I've sinned against you, sinned against God. He's like, yes, you have. Goodbye. He's like, oh, no, I'm not worth, like, he's preparing for it. And, like, I say, I prepare for arguments I already had. I, like, replay them, like, in Mariano's, like, looking around, like, oh, I'm having an argument with myself. That's, that's kind of where he's at. He's psyching himself up because he knows he doesn't deserve it. Like, there's no reason that he should be given another chance. He took his chance and literally threw it away. And so there should be nothing left for him. But we know that Jesus is gracious with his acceptance. Just like he's willing to sit and eat and talk with these tax collectors... Jesus, in telling this story of this son, the son does not deserve another chance, but he's given grace, which is when you get a chance that you shouldn't have. And so, if we pick up at verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So not only does his dad welcome him home, like not only is he willing to give him this chance that he doesn't deserve, but he runs to him. Like even the act of running at this time is considered like, that's for poor people. Rich people walk. (laughs) Like I'm not going to exert myself more than I have to. So like the father is even making a spectacle of himself, not just in accepting his son he shouldn't, but running out to meet him. And in 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. All right, my practice speech is going well. Let's see how he, how he goes here. But the father said to his servants, Quick, 
bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. He was lost. He is found. There's a celebration. And so there's a lot packed into these couple verses that's going on here. Jesus is giving this incredible grace. This father is giving this incredible grace to this son that doesn't deserve it in any way. And the father doesn't even let him get through his speech. He doesn't like what the son wants is to come and be a hired hand. A hired hand is like the lowest possible position that he could have. A servant, like a, a slave that works for a family, gets to live in the house, gets to have like they're constantly provided for. But a hired hand, you're just given some day wages and at any day you could lose that job. You don't know if you're going to have it. That's what he's hoping. He's like, maybe just, just something. My dad will give me the smallest chance, but he doesn't even let him get that far. He instantly welcomes him in. His father runs out to meet him, and he gives him five different things here. And they all have quite a bit of significance. He tells his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And so as he brings this robe, like I have to imagine the picture that's going on here, because I have this father who's presumably pretty well off. He's got land. He's got property. He's doing, he has servants. He's doing pretty well for himself. I imagine he's quite put together. And he comes out of his house, runs up to his son, who just traveled from a distant land, has been living with pigs, feeding them. Like he smells, he's covered in dirt. He looks disgusting. Like he's had a rough go of it. He's probably starting to get emaciated. He hasn't even had anything to eat. He's so desperate. He's going home just for anything. And the first thing that the father does is bring him the best robe. So he takes this robe and he wraps it around his son. And so this robe, it's showing that he belongs to this house. It doesn't matter where he's been. It doesn't matter this past that he has. It doesn't matter the literal muck that he's been through. That's not what people see now. The first thing that they see is this beautiful robe wrapped around him because he belongs to this house. He said, put a ring on his finger. Well, this ring is probably actually like a signet ring from the father, and it actually is the authority of the household. And so by having this ring, it's like, I have power of eternity. I have, I have the right and authority to rule this place. And so immediately, even without question of where this son has been, he's given the ring. He's given authority over this house again. And, and sandals for his feet. Now, the, uh, the son was just hoping to maybe even be a hired hand. But servants at this time, they didn't get shoes. Shoes were reserved for like members of the household. They were reserved for someone that was uh, actually family. And so what he was hoping for was some scraps, but instantly he is welcomed back into the family as they put sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now, the fattened calf is like, they've been saving it. It's a calf that they've been 
preparing for a feast, probably a religious feast. This is your most valuable calf. It is not something that I just have a whole bunch of sitting around. Like, I'm lucky if I have more than one calf, but this is my fattened calf. It's the best of the best. It is something I am saving for a really important moment. And that is when the father says, he's home, kill the fattened calf, we're going to celebrate tonight, we're putting steaks on the grill, because the son has worth. Even though he took everything he had and he squandered it and he wasted it, he still has worth. And so, bring the calf. And finally, they began to celebrate. The fact, the mere fact that the son is home is cause for celebration. He's filled with joy. The father is so ecstatic that his son has come back home. He's filled with joy. It's time to celebrate. And so this robe, this ring, this sandal, this calf, this celebration, it's showing the incredible grace that this father has for this son. He didn't deserve it. He took his chance and he ruined it. But the father says, I'm still willing to accept you. You still belong in this house. You still have worth. You still fill me with joy just to be able to see you here. But unfortunately, the older brother has a bit of issue with this. So if we pick up at verse 28, the father is ecstatic that his lost son has been found. It's time to celebrate. In verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this is, this is the point where it's kind of get, it can get a little convicting because the older brother, he was doing the right thing. He didn't try to take his inheritance and leave. Like, he's been there day after day, caring for his father's flock, doing the right things. This brother in this moment, he is the Pharisees. It's, it's kind of hard sometimes because as we look at Scripture now, we kind of see the Pharisees as the bad guys, right? They're constantly the ones challenging Jesus. They're constantly the ones telling him that the things he's doing is crazy. They're the ones trying to stop him. They're ultimately the ones that get him killed. But the Pharisees, they are the church. They are the religious leaders. A lot of times, I think that can still happen today as those that are already in the church start to look around and say, hey, I've been doing the right thing. I go to church, I tithe, I don't kill anyone, I'm a good person. So how about those sinners, those bad people out there? They just stay out there. I'm comfortable in my little sphere here. They get really self-righteous. I think this brother's clearly bitter about these years that he's been serving. He hasn't been like, 
joyfully serving for his father. He's been doing it out of what he believes was this duty and obligation. He doesn't even acknowledge his brother as a brother. He says, this son of yours. It's like, that's not my brother. That's your son. And I don't think that he should be allowed back in. I've been here working. Where's my calf? You didn't even give me a goat. Like, (laughs) you've lived here all these years. I've given you everything. I've always provided for you. And he reveals a bit of his own heart here too. Because if you look at his accusation of his brother, if you, if you look back at what Jesus told us, what was the brother doing? He squandered everything he had on wild living. Now wild living, I suppose, is open to a wide interpretation. But the brother says, he squandered your property with prostitutes and comes home. So like, the brother kind of is escalating. He's putting something on him. He's like, listen, he was out there doing all these things. Like, no one said that. Is that what you would have done if you took the money? Like, are you revealing a little bit of your own heart, a bit, little bit of your own desire in that? I think if, if we're not careful, we become the Pharisees. I know there's times that all I'm trying to do is like get right with God. Like, okay, what, what do I have to do? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying enough? I'm going to church. Am I doing all the things I'm supposed to do? When what Jesus is constantly saying is, how are you loving those right around you? How are you caring for those right next to you? Because there's a bigger celebration for those that are lost when they can come home than those that have been home the whole time. Finally, Jesus provides this roadmap for redemption. Jesus ultimately is this roadmap for redemption. Jesus wants to find the lost. Like this crazy new idea to these Pharisees is that God wants to find the lost. That God wants to expand his love to those that need it most. So often, I think we kind of lose sight of that too. That I focus so much on the things that I'm doing, on the way that I'm living, on whether or not I'm doing bad things. It's like, how can I go and show love and grace to the lost right around me? Or am I like that sheep? Am I just wandering off lost and I don't even know it? Jesus is this roadmap and and he lays it out, he really lays it out pretty clearly in Luke 19.10. He said, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Like that's ultimately his roadmap. Like, listen, I know that you look at me sitting here with these tax collectors and these sinners and you think, why would he debase himself? Why would he be with those people? Why would he be doing those things? It's like, because that's why I'm here. I'm here to offer that grace to those that don't even know that they need it yet. I'm here to seek and save the lost. There's a lot of different lost things. I think that's why Jesus put these three parables together. That's why he's kind of tying them together. So often we pick and choose one or the other, but like the sheep 
it just, in its own foolishness, found itself somewhere it wasn't supposed to be. Yes, I can relate to that. I do that quite often. The coin, of no fault of its own, the coin was just lost. It, it didn't, like, get up and go hide somewhere. The coin, of no fault of its own, is lost, but yet God went and still sought it out and found it. Maybe some of us, we're that son. The son is deliberately lost. He knew what he was doing. He said, you know what? I don't want that life. I don't want anything to do with my father any longer. I'm going to go out and do this other life that I choose. That's some of us. It doesn't matter how these are lost. God wants every single one of them to be found. Whether it was one of a hundred, one of ten, or even just one of two, God constantly was out there seeking for the lost. Once it was found, it was a time for celebration. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for you this morning. God, as we continue to unpack these stories, these parables that you said thousands of years ago, God, as poignant as they were then, they still are to us now. God, sometimes I feel that we are the lost. They're just hopelessly wandering, just waiting for someone to find us. God, if that's, if that's us this morning, I pray that you would just, God, help us to, to know we're lost. God, help us to know that we need to be found. God, help us this morning to accept you as you come searching for us. God, that we could dive deeper into a relationship with you as we celebrate this morning. God, some of us, maybe we're not lost, but we still need that grace because we're the ones that are just judging, maybe even bitterly following along on these rules, these regulations that we feel like are this way that I can earn your earn your mercy, earn your good favor, but God, you've already given it to us. I pray this morning that you would just help each and every one of us to know whether we're lost, whether we've been found, whether we're in a time of celebration, God, that you would do anything to draw closer to us to find the lost and draw us into a relationship with you. God, we love you. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us at church this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's teaching. If you have any questions or comments, shoot an email to office at scog.com. To continue to support our mission to reach, grow, and serve our community for Christ, you can give online at scog.com or through the app. See you next week.